Hello, and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, um, a podcast where we talk about plant molecular biology generally, or just more broadly, all things related to plants. And today we have a very special episode. Yoram. Yeah, hi, I'm Yoram. And today we have a guest. It's not just the two of us babbling at each other. Um, today we have a, a special episode. Today we're talking to Dr. Ali Baumgartner. Now, I'm, did I say that right now? Yes, that was okay. right. Uh, we, we practiced before and... Um, when it when like when the moment comes, I'm always hesitating again. You ger- you Germanized it a little like, more, yeah. And yeah. where does she work, Yoram? Which is also Germanized. <laughs> yeah, she works. Um, she's a paleontologist, and she's working as a paleontology collections manager at Sternberg Museum in Hayes, Kansas. And it's not Sternberg, as I believed when I was reading it, Sternberg, um, because apparently in Kansas they have a lot of German heritage, which confuses Germans like me. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get letters now. Like, Yoram, you've been so German. This is, you should try and pick up. No, we should never do accents on the show. That would be a terrible idea. No, like, I, I stopped doing that in like episode two. It's already a mess with whatever's happening here. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we kind of met Ali online via Instagram, actually. And I've been following her for a while. I'm fascinated by what she posts there. And I'll let her talk a little bit more about that. But the reason we invited her today is because I saw a 30-second video where she not only explained photosynthesis, but also explained different types of photosynthesis, the fact that plants don't just photosynthesize in one way. And I was like, I don't think I've like I've seen professors who this is their job and they can't do this. Definitely not in 30 seconds, definitely not as clear. Like this person knows what they're talking about and they know how to talk to the public about it. So I'm like, we gotta get her on the podcast. And that's what we did. So welcome, Ali. Thank you for coming and joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm really glad you liked that video. <laughs> it was great. It was really, really amazing. Everybody go and watch it now. Instagram. I'll, yeah. I'll be completely honest. The entire reason that I made it was because I was listening to a different podcast where non-botanists were trying to explain the three types of photosynthesis. And I got so upset. Like you're, I'm like, you're making it so complicated. It doesn't have to be that hard. And so I was like, I bet I could do it in 30 seconds. And then I did. And I was really happy about it. I really hope that yeah. podcast wasn't us because it could it have been not. us. It was not. It <laughs> was not. I've definitely got stuck on writing like 600, 700 words just to explain like one sort of the photos. I'm like, this can just go on forever. And it's like, it, it can, it always can. There's more detail. And especially when you have that training and you want to explain like, this is years and decades of scientific work has gone into understanding how this thing works. And we still don't understand it. And I want to share my passion, but it's like, that's also not helpful. Yep. That's <laughs> yeah, I understand. Not making it easier. <laughs> yeah, Exactly. So maybe you can like, yeah, introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, I realize I should have led with that, but I'm really proud of that video. Um, so hello, <laughs> my name is uh, Dr. Ali Baumgartner, my pronouns are she, her, um, and I am a paleobotanist normally, um, but I'm currently working as a paleontologist. So right now my day job involves a lot of vertebrates, which is weird. Ooh. Yeah, it's an adjustment. So a um, little bit about my background. I'm an accidental botanist. Um, I didn't mean to be. <laughs> so um, I grew up, I'm from, I'm from Michigan. Um, I grew up, I just was describing myself the other day as a forest gremlin. Um, one of those children that was just constantly outside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I uh, just constantly outside. And when I was in high school, 
I took this class. Um, my dad was my high school science teacher, and it was a class called Michigan Plants and Animals. And we learned how to identify like every local tree. We only did trees because uh, they're a little bit easier. Um, so I learned how to identify every local tree. It's like, oh, that's that's pretty neat. And then I went to college, and I like I always knew I wanted to be a paleontologist. And I went to college, and I took like half paleontology courses and then half botany courses. Cause like, Oh, you know, trees are neat. I like trees. And then I applied for a master's in, um, I wanted to do vertebrate paleontology. I thought that I was going to work on mammoths. Like that was my plan. And then I only got it. I got accepted into one master's uh, program and I was like showed up and I was ready. I was like, I'm going to work on mammoths. And they gave me my project and I was going to be working on paleobotany. (laughs) And I was like, well, I mean, like plants are cool. I know things about plants. You know, fortune, that's why it was given to me because I had a plant background and I never really thought about it. Like I knew, I knew things about plants, but I like, Mm -hmm. they were, they were just plants. Like I wanted to do other things. And then I think that was like the best accident I ever could have had because I realized that the questions that I was interested in, in asking scientifically weren't actually possible. Like I couldn't really answer them by looking at the vertebrates because I really like paleoclimate, paleoenvironment, paleoecology. And like mm-hmm. the animals are the least important part of that. <laughs> like, so I, true. So true. <laughs> and so I wasn't, in, yeah. it wasn't until I like kind of realized that, that I became like full paleo Lorax. Like I speak for the trees. And uh, when I was looking for PhD programs, there was no doubt in my mind. It's like, I want to do this. Like I want to work with plants. I want to do paleoclimate. Like, and yeah, which was nice because um, when I finished my master's, I kind of hated my project because it was two years. It was super intense and like, you, you hate everything. Like the normal way yeah, to, hate, to finish something. Also your PhD, you should like slightly hate things by the time you're done. That's like the sign that you should submit. I did not hate my project, the end of my PhD, which was amazing, Ooh. which I took as like a sign, like I'm clearly doing the right thing. Because I don't hate it. Because I fully expect it to. Because it was five years. And it was like, yeah, obviously by the end of it, I'm going to be sick of it. And I wasn't. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, <laughs> I made the right choice. I had, yeah, Yoram, did you have rage at the end of your PhD? I definitely had a little bit of a, a slump where I was like, I just don't. I want to. And that's actually why we're doing Plants and Pipettes, I think, was like part of that was my end of PhD slump where I'm like, I need to read about something else. Like, it can't always be this, like, like I did chloroplast development. I'm like, I just, it can't always be about chloroplast development. I mean, it has to be yeah. and then yeah. plants and pipette was born but yeah absolutely like two years in out of my three to four year <laughs> um activity there i was just like oh my god let, let like let, i want to be over with this when is this done um and i mean technically not done yet i <laughs> still haven't submitted yeah, when, when is it done <laughs> yeah i don't know hopefully this year um what? corona is I'm not making it easier oh uh, i sorry yeah. i understand i so i was supposed to finish I was supposed to finish in March <clears throat> of last year, and obviously, <laughs> that was complicated. Things changed. Yeah, yeah. Some, something happened in the world. What was happening around March? Can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> Can't remember. But I ended up. Uh, yeah, and so I was on the job market, and I was just. I had. I had my interview for this job that I ended up getting um, the day before my 
the university I was doing my PhD at before they shut down. And so it was like, well, I'm not getting the job. Like, there's no way. (laughs) There's no way they're going to hire someone. Uh, And then they did. But I actually defended my, my dissertation on a Thursday. And then the following Monday, I moved to Kansas. (laughs) Wow. It was not a good choice. (laughs) I I shouldn't have done that. I imagine. I think like I did something really similar with my master's. I think I submitted it like at the end of the week. I had like a family wedding that weekend and then I moved like from Australia to Germany um, on the Monday and with the plans to like start my new job like the Thursday after I arrived or something. It was like this super short. But it was also this thing with science where I was like, the reason that happened was because I told the people like at the PhD that I'd totally be done in August. And of course I wasn't done in August. I wasn't done until November. So I was like, it'll be fine. I'll be done by August. I'll have time to pack. I'll like get all my stuff together. And then I was like, submit, submit, run, run, go, go. And just that's science, right? Yeah. I told my committee that I was starting a job on, I think July 13th. And so like, oh, so you could like defend the seventh. Like, no, 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 no. I need like a little bit more time. Just a little bit. I mean, I had, I had like a week from when I defended to when I started my job. It's fine. Don't do that. (laughs) Guys, if you're finishing a PhD, take a really long break afterward. Mm -hmm. Like a couple of months, I would say. Like, yes, that's the way to do it. De-stress. Sleep. Although like moving, sleep a lot. Yeah. (laughs) Moving is kind of nice because you get like, you get more stress, but you do get the refresh as far as like, if you did hate your masters or you did hate your pre, like you know, that's gone now. You're physically away oh, yeah. from all of that, and well, it's it's free. it's been very like it's very clear to me that I am no longer a grad student because like I am in a new place. I am at, like I'm in a different state. I'm in a museum. Like I could I could see fossils from where I'm sitting. Like you know, I it's it's very clear to me that I am you know I'm no. I was gonna say we're not in Kansas anymore, but like I literally am in Kansas. Now. Yeah, literally am in Kansas. That must come yes, up a yes. lot. That's so, yeah. Is that how did you find that? I mean, I found like the transition from going to be a PhD to a postdoc. Like suddenly you're supposed to you're a doctor now you're supposed to like have this knowledge of being a doctor but at the same time especially if you're moving jobs you're starting again you're especially if you're moving city you're like in a new workplace you're on a new topic was that really bizarre to you this whole thing of like on one hand I know things on the other hand oh crap I know nothing I really <laughs> oh, know nothing yeah like, it's 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 so weird because so I was I because of the 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 research that I did I oversaw what my advisor and I called an army of undergraduates uh during my PhD oh, wow. uh, there were only 11 of them but like <laughs> that's a lot of people it wasn't all at the same time but yeah I oversaw a lot of undergrads like this is something I was used to but it was a little bit different because like I was like obviously I was like a couple steps above them but we were all students and like but now like I am in charge of people. People think I know things. And <laughs> it is kind of weird. And it, it's also, especially considering that, like, this is a big change. I'm, I've had, so most of my social media that I do is actually on Twitter. Um, I, like, have an, someone, someone described it once as, like, I have an emotional attachment to Twitter. Um, it's, it's, oh, it's no. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's a bit toxic as well. It's not I, a healthy relationship. I need Twitter relationship, I, I would I've say. A, I've actually had a really good relationship with Twitter, and I can talk about that a little bit later. I've been very fortunate. But um, 
I've talked about this on Twitter a lot that I can't remember where the end of this, this sentence was going. Cause I got distracted about my emotional relationship with Twitter. <laughs> it's fine. Um, what is this? <laughs> uh, we're talking about PhD and postdocs. And like, I don't remember. It's completely gone. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. I, I would like to, I would like to know, like, what did you do your PhD then in? Because in a, like your master's brought you to sort of the plant, the paleobotany. Is this then also what you did then for okay. your PhD? That is actually a complicated question. Um, so <laughs> the short answer is kind of. Um, technically, mm. yes, but I did more than that. So my – okay, so the way that my PhD program works – so Amer the, like the American system – is different. It's a little bit longer, but I did my PhD at Baylor in, which is in Texas. Um, and the way that it worked in my department, I was in a geology department and the way that it worked in my department was you had to have a paper published a second submitted and then another chapter in order to defend your dissertation. And these were actually more lenient than when I started. Okay. When I started, it was you had to have two papers published and a third submitted. And then they realized that people didn't graduate in time. So they, it's, wow, yeah. yeah. So by the time that I finished my dissertation, like finished and like defended my dissertation, I already had a first author paper published. Um, so, <laughs> and that's where it gets complicated. So the actual like broad, like Venn diagram of my dissertation was testing assumptions of paleoclimate proxies. And so I had these three distinct projects, um, one of which is paleobotany. The other two were botany, <laughs> like modern plants, um, and all kind of overlapping, basically like testing, you know, testing the assumptions that we're making with these paleoclimate proxies. My first paper, which is published open access, you can read it. Uh, I'm very proud of it. <laughs> we'll put the link in the show notes. The figures exactly. are beautiful. <laughs> like if nothing else, please look at the figures. I put a lot of work Aww. into them. Uh, so what I was looking at was, um, <clears throat> so one of the base, this, uh, so just generally one of the basis, uh, like basics of paleobotanical paleoclimate proxies is using leaf size and shape to estimate temperature and precipitation. So in general, you tend to have a higher proportion of species with toothed leaves in cooler environments um, and then a higher proportion of untoothed leaves in warmer environments. And then in general, the bigger the leaf, the higher the mm -hmm. precipitation. So you can use these things to you know, determine te uh, paleo temperature and paleo precipitation. So one of the things that we wanted to know was whether or not um, development could be a confounding factor <laughs> in that um, and whether or not or what, how fast that happens, because we know that leaf shape is plastic. Leaf shape can change, which is you know why we can use leaf shape as an understanding of, of temperature. It's also why you should not try to identify plants based on their leaves alone, because leaf shape is not helpful. Um, <laughs> Is that like, is there a direct story? That sounds like that's come from some sort of um, well, personal okay. experience. Yes, kind of. Oak trees are the worst. I love oaks. I want to preface that. Oak is like the only tree in Europe that I can recognize. Like I grew up in Australia. If it's not a eucalypt, <laughs> I can't tell what it is. But oak has these really distinctive yes. oaky leaves. And now you're telling me I can't even trust my oakiness of my leaves. What is happening? Oh, okay, no, 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 no. You could say it's an oak. Like okay. they, oaks have oaky leaves and that is the best way to describe it. Because yes, you just look at it and it's an oak. 
consistently but, okay. Yes, they are consistently okay. Except for, sorry, side note, live oh, oaks. Nice. <laughs> live oaks are not oaky. Like their leaves don't look anything like oak leaves. And I was very upset when I was first trying to figure out like, what is this tree? And someone told me it was a live oak. I'm like, that's a lie. That's not what oak what, leaves look what, like. What do you mean a live, a live oak? What is it? It's a type of oak. Yes. Okay. So, you know, pictures of like New Orleans in like the, like, like the Southeast of the U.S. with these like really big trees with these huge spreading branches with like live or uh, Spanish moss hanging on them. You're really testing the the with my so geographical sorry. knowledge. I know. Okay, I'm gonna look it up. New Orleans um, oak trees. Do you reckon that's a good yeah. Google prompt? Yeah, that should get you it. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. This is like yeah. old stuff where like yeah. the the trunk is not going upwards. It's like it's going out. It's doing its, its thing and. A lot of them are like propped up as well. They're they have poles to hold the the trunk up because it just like it's like I'm an old tree. I'm not going to bother with this self support thing anymore. Like, exactly. But look at the leaves. amazing. Look oh at yeah, leaves. look at that moss. Okay, I can't see the leaves in close up. They're all like. All right, where's the leaves? I, I found Leaf. one. I, I found one, and I I would describe it to me like first impression was like bay leaves or something like yes. very oh. common standard yeah. leaves. <laughs> They don't look like oak leaves. It looks like, to me, it looks like an avocado even. Like, what are you doing? You're not an oak. (laughs) Exactly. So So I think like we need like a little disclaimer here that Yoram and I are clearly not botanists. And this is something I get put up a lot of on the Instagram because like I love plants so much. I love taking photos of them. And then I put it up and then somebody messages me and is like, what is that? And I'm like, I don't know. Like... We did model plant species. We did Arabidopsis. We did tobacco, like maybe tomato. But like, apart from that, not great with, with actually the botany side of things. So it's, it's good that we've got you here, honestly. I, so I am, I am, I'm basically only good at trees. Like if it's herbaceous, I'm so sorry. I've got nothing for you. Um, but yeah, like I took. Also, like, honestly, my, my botany class in, in university involved trying to um, like, work out which species different spin effects were so if you know like what a spin effect is like little grass growing in the desert but like these things they they are literally they're angry and they're they're small and angry so it's like a grass but then it's it's a roll it's got it's, it's got like two leaves and it's rolled up that leaf because it's summer and then you look at the botanic like there's a there's a herbarium specimen you know and it's like it's these beautiful lush open leaves with a flower attached and you're trying to compare that to something that's basically like a paper straw stuck into a bit of sand and you're supposed to be able to tell like which and you know of course like it's my, my part of Australia is like has a lot of diverse species. So there's like 500 of the same type of spin effects. And it's like, we identified this because it has purple flowers. And you're looking at this freaking straw in the desert. And you're like, I, what am I doing? <laughs> like, what am I doing with my life right now that I'm trying to tell what this guy is? Like, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I understand when we get, oh yeah, I, I relate to that. I have stories. Uh, but anyway, I want to tell about my first paper. <laughs> So yeah, what, it, what's the paper? I'm trying to look for it quickly online now. Can you give us like okay. the title? Oh, see, that's the thing. I don't remember the title, but it's uh, <laughs> it's published in the American Journal of Botany. It was published in 2020. Um, hey. I'm the first author. It's on Vitus. The, the influence of environmental change and development on leaf shape in Vitus. Vitus yes. is like grape related. Grapes. Is that true? Yeah. yeah, it's grapes. So I was looking at. So remember when I said that. I'm friends with Twitter. So I actually found my PhD advisor on Twitter. Oh, wow. Bef- 
Yeah, so we followed each other on Twitter um, before I was, like, not long before I was looking for PhD programs. And then when I, when I was, like, looking up potential PhD advisors, I, like, came across his website and then I, like, linked to his Twitter. I was like, oh, I know who you are. <laughs> and he followed, he had already followed me. And so when I emailed him the first time, I was like, hey, I follow you on Twitter. He's like, yeah, I know, I follow you, which was really exciting. I would be inclined to like put some some hints out there, like start dropping more tweets about his topic, like baiting him and then making the connection be like, oh, what a coincidence. <laughs> like, well, no he, no, he did say he's like, I've been meaning to talk to you. I thought you'd be interested in this project. Like you are correct. Oh, wow. Um, because so his research was looking at um, what a lot of what he did was paleobotany. He was actually working in East Africa um, doing like paleoclimate as like context for human evolution. And I actually like, I'm two classes away from a double major in um, environmental science and biological anthropology in undergrad. So like I was super into that. Uh, but anyway, so right before I started speaking of Twitter, my advisor was talking to someone on Twitter who had like posted these beautiful photos of grape leaves and they were looking at like changes in leaf shape. And my advisor was like, Hey, have you looked at uh, the, like the way the teeth change? And he said, no, but if you want, I'll give you the data. So <laughs> that paper. Wow. Yeah. So my collaborator, so Dan Pepe is my advisor and Dan Chitwood was the person on Twitter who gave us the data. <laughs> so like. This is such a nice, that's a nice example of how like modern technology can actually work. Like this is. The ideal we have is scientists connecting across the country, across the world, and you know sharing scientific data. And unfortunately, the system has got a, like a little bit not ideal in that. People are like very skeptical about sharing their information. They don't want to. And it, like this story you're telling, it's exactly that. There's enthusiasm. There's passion. Like it's like yeah, the perfect ideal of what science should be. And this is don't why know. I have an emotional attachment to Twitter because like I've had really <laughs> good experiences. But yeah, so yeah. anyway, what we looked at was we looked at these species of these four different species of vitus, three that are North American, one that's actually from uh, East Asia. And basically, like, how, how quickly do these leaves change shape in different growing seasons and found out that they could do it between growing seasons. Like there were predictable differences in leaf shape between two consecutive growing seasons in ways that we would expect if they were uh, responding to changes in temperature and precipitation, which is amazing. Yeah, just to be clear, this is not like them changing because they're growing older. It's like them basically sensing, oh, it's a rainy summer. Mm. I'm going to need like thicker leaves or whatever. The Yeah, and it's because cool. it's... It's a little bit complicated because it's a vine and vines play by their own rules. Um, <laughs> sneaky. I think they're sneaky. That's the, that's the adjective. We I, <laughs> I would call vines sneaky. Yes, I would. Uh, yeah. So they, they do things a little bit differently. But yeah, in general, like we were able to see these differences and it, it didn't seem to be related to um, development. There were, were, there were differences like there were differences in development, but they didn't seem to 
play that much of a role. <laughs> like again, we'll put the link in the show notes, but just pointing to figure one here, which as you said is quite beautiful. So there's like a That's scary, my favorite. Yeah, it's it's Instagram worthy, which yes. I think speaks to its beauty. You have like a series of what four different types of um mm-hmm. grape, which is I guess the, these four varieties you were talking about, and showing them over the developmental stage and just like this progression from small to larger, but also change in how lobed and how sort of toothed they are i'm not sure if i'm using the correct terms here but that's what i would say very pretty very very well done (laughs) thank you i i spent so much time on that figure but it is the most beautiful thing that i have ever made (laughs) i think the amount of time it takes to do figures in any in a publication in a phd it's you never know it's going to take weeks not hours and Uh, it's really it's worth it so much i mean we've talked about this on our podcast before but the amount of effort you're putting into the visualization of your results should be basically as much as you put into getting those results because that's how other scientists and also other non-scientists are going to know what the hell you're talking about. It's so important. And like, I'm looking at this picture and I'm happy. I, I want to read more <laughs> about this because I'm seeing beautiful pictures and that's that's what you guys need to be doing with your science, obviously. Like, yes. Yeah. Prettier pictures. We need prettier <laughs> pictures. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so th- like the first thing I ever did in my dissertation in a geology department was a paper about grapes. And so I people didn't know what to do with me uh, <laughs> because most of what I did it wasn't it wasn't directly paleobotany, but it was an application to paleobotany because there are all of these I Okay, I have become the kind of person who like yells about modeling because like people will use it's important that if you are using like a scientific model to know what is in it. Like mm-hmm. how was it made? What are the assumptions? Like don't just go plugging stuff in willy-nilly. Um I get I oh, this is I, such a this is a sensitive topic I've got to say, yeah. Especially with like with machine learning coming up so much, like so much of that mm-hmm. stuff is just like put it into the black box, get an output. Do we know what happened in the box? We're not sure what happened in the box. Magic. Like, magic happened in the magic box. Ha- Hopefully. <laughs> like, who knows? The black magic? We know, black like, magic. Yeah. yeah. So so um, there is – so my second and, like, third project were best friends. Uh, they, were, they were related to each other because I was looking at – okay. So, Kenya – my advisor was working on, he is a paleobotanist, but he's also a stratigrapher. So he would, and does geochronology. So basically he can read rocks. He can go out into the field and tell you like, um, okay, during this time, the environment was like this. During this time, the environment was like this. During this time, the environment was like this. Oh, I, I have he, a question here. I am I've ready. Read. How, how, how much of this reading involves him licking the rocks? Does he lick the rocks? Of course you lick rocks. <laughs> I thought so. That's what that's one of the only things that people know about geologists is that we lick they rocks. They love to lick rocks. Love it. That's what we've heard. <laughs> this is this is true. Uh, paleontologists will also lick rocks because mm-hmm. uh, that's how you can bone. tell it's bone. Yeah. Yeah. Hey. Bones, <laughs> I'm so proud of you. Yeah, because bones will stick to your tongue. <laughs> I think that's a Jurassic Park fact, right? That must be in one of those big movies that I know oh, about. I have it. no idea. I wouldn't be yeah. surprised. Uh, I learned it. Yeah, it's. I know that like archaeologists will do it because that's one way that you can tell the difference between bone and pottery. Um, okay. 
because pottery is not porous bone is bone will stick to your tongue and did, did you expect that going into like that kind of paleontology do you think you know what this is a field i have like a good ability to lick things and tell what's happening like this is a good field for me like it's like an unexpected <laughs> skill or like perk of the job that you get to really taste the environment i you know what kind of like <laughs> i like that we use all of our senses like you touch taste smell all of that uh for us, they're like, they're really restrictive. Like, we're not allowed to lick anything in the lab. Once you go in the lab, they're like, no licking. <laughs> did you ever lick any of your samples? Because I, I certainly didn't. And like, whatever I could already smell from most of my samples, I work with tobacco. I also had oh, no yeah. intention of licking it or <laughs> putting it anywhere close to my face. Like, it's really sticky and smelly and... Like, we had two-hour safety lectures where they would say, like, specifically, do not lick things in the lab. Like, basically, the whole... It was a very long lecture, and the whole take-home message was, like, please don't lick things in the lab. Like, we, So, we didn't lick things when we were in Kenya um, because there was a lot of <laughs> goat poop. Oh, my. Amazing. Uh, Coprolith? Copra something. Coprolite, yeah. Coprolite, yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so actually, so fun fact about that. Um, okay, there were these fossil bee broods. So like these these ground living bees, we would find fossil, like the fossil remains of their homes. And the problem was they look just like goat poop. So... <laughs> The wow. way that, yeah. So you you so you had to be careful that you were picking up a fossil and not we we needed this poop. or that on Twitter or Instagram. Like, is this a goat poo or a fossil bee brood? Because I personally <laughs> right? don't think I could recognize any of them, which is probably a well, failing in my education. <laughs> no, no, no. Well, I yeah. Okay, they don't look like much until someone points out to you like that's a fossil. Um, but fun fact: the way that you tell the difference is you take a stick and you poke it <laughs> because this is the secrets you guys you don't hear these secrets on the news like you heard it here first that poking things is very important in any kind of like paleo work <laughs> yes and you do you poke things with sticks because um, if you poke it with a stick and it squishes then it's it is definitely it's a poo but yes. if it doesn't if it doesn't squish it could just be a sun-dried poo. So you still have to be careful. <laughs> Amazing. So like like the decision weird... chart continues. Like, yeah. the, like You're not at the end yet. You have more branches of like... Could still be poo. <laughs> taste it. Could, could still be poo. Do not taste the poo. No. Do not. That's a good way to get sick. So I think this is a good way to kind of segue into Kenya. What was happening there, what you were doing there. Because before we started the show, Yoram already like expressed some I would say jealousy about the fact that the furthest he got to go was to the greenhouse and you got to travel to Kenya as part of your studies so maybe you can tell us about that oh I'd love to so uh full disclosure part of the reason I chose my project was because I got to go to Kenya <laughs> um, good, good so oh I I regret nothing. <laughs> so I, okay, so my, my dissertation, my research was funded, but none of my travel was. So any like research travel that I had, to, I had to do, I had to get external funding. And I got really fortunate and got really good at getting external funding. So I got to go to the Missouri Botanical Gardens, which is an enormous and amazing botanical gardens. And then I got to spend a month at Kew, 
which was one of the best experiences of my life. I uh, was working in the herbarium both of these times. Um, I went, well, okay, so I went to the herbarium in Paris and I actually didn't get to see anything because of a failure to communicate. But I got to go inside. <laughs> um, and then while I was in London, I actually did not know if I was ever going to make it to Kenya. I had applied for this grant and I was in London. And I found out that I got it. And so I had two weeks from when I got back from the UK to plan a trip to Kenya. Wow. That was stressful and expensive. (laughs) So I actually did three trips to Kenya. Um, So the first time I I went in 2017, I was there for a month and I was just working in the museum. I went again in 2018. I was there for two months um, two weeks of that I spent in the field. And then I went in the in January of 2019 for a month. Uh, and again, I was just working in the museum. So I've spent four months in Kenya. And it was so amazing. Fantastic. Yeah, it was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, I, I was talking to somebody yesterday. I was like, I just I miss Kenya so much. Because so it was okay, let me tell you, like from the beginning, it's it's getting there is an adventure because it's a little bit easier when you're starting in like the same hemisphere. Like Mm -hmm. you just have to go from the Northern hemisphere to the Southern hemisphere. Like I had colleagues in Germany. So easy. It's like a five hour flight. No big deal. Yeah. 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 Like you gotta be, Oh, I guess it's like a 10 hour flight, but whatever. It's like, gotta be kidding me. Cause I had to fly 10 hours from uh, Texas to London and then have a layover in Heathrow, and then another 10-hour flight to Nairobi. And that was when I did it right. Like, that was the ideal situation. The first trip, because I had two weeks' notice, I had a 14-hour flight to Dubai. 14 hours is too long to be on a plane. I know you've come from Australia, (laughs) but, like, 14 hours is too long to be honest on a plane. That's like definitely my feeling with like talking to European colleagues. They're like, oh, I have to go so far. I have to do three hours to go home to Italy. And I'm like, dude, 24 hours. Like literally it's going to be 24 hours before. And then it's like seven hours time different. You know how it is. The time difference is in itself excruciating. (sighs) Just like, yeah. I think I'm one of the few people who enjoys like long distance flights. I like. No, because you haven't done a real long distance flight. You haven't gone to to Japan. I flew flew to Japan. (sighs) It was like 12 hours or something on a plane, but I enjoyed like the food and the movies and that is true i yeah that's the thing like this the flight to dubai was the longest experience of my life it was also full of children because it was full of families <laughs> yeah um but they gave me an eye mask and i had they gave me so much tea so like you know but i'm never doing it again uh- <laughs> but you did it you did it three times you went to kenya in the end so like obviously yeah, three times what you were doing there was well worth the trip so like yes. what's Yes. What were you okay. specifically studying once you were there? Okay, so I actually did a lot of things while I was there. Um, so, like I said, I do botany and paleobotany. So my trip to Kenya was mostly paleobotany, like some botany sprinkled in, because I did go to the herbarium at the museum, which was... I love going to herbaria. It makes me so happy. They're beautiful. They smell nice. Like, just love them. Um, but most of the time that I was there, um, I was working with rocks with fossils on them. Um, so, okay. 
in my entirely unbiased opinion, <laughs> leaf fossils are the best fossils. And uh-huh. okay, my reasoning for that is again entirely unbiased. Actually, this is I think this is slightly more objective. Slightly. We're gonna get so much hate mail on this segment. They're gonna be like, "Have you not heard about snails and fossils? Snails are amazing." <laughs> Ugh, okay, I have. I am the paleontology collections manager. I am in charge of vertebrate fossils. I am in charge of invertebrate fossils. I have taught invertebrate paleontology. Like, I have seen many fossils. And I will give invertebrates partial credit because some of them are pretty fossils. For the reason I'm about to explain, leaf fossils, I think, are the best fossils because they look like something. Like, if you have a... This is objective, okay? Um, So, like, if you have an impression of a leaf, it looks like a leaf. It does not take much imagination to realize that's a plant. And that's really nice. Because, like, if you're doing outreach or, like, even when I was just working with my field assistants, like, you pull it out, like, you pull out the rock, you look at it, there's a leaf on it, like, it... Mm -hmm. It does not take much imagination. It's easy to get excited, like, oh, my goodness, this is 20 million years old. Oh, my goodness. So, wait, wait, what's happening with the invertebrates that you can't tell what they are? What's happening there? Oh, okay. No, so, like, invertebrates. Or with anything. Like, okay, maybe vertebrates, I get it. The the soft tissue is degrading, and then you just see, like, bony bits. Is that right? Yeah, so invertebrates are actually, like, pretty decent because you get a body fossil. Like, it looks like a thing. Um, So, like, if you find a fossil snail, it looks like a snail shell. Like a shelly bit. Yeah, Yeah. okay, okay. But but the difference is, like, people don't – people are normally not interested in invertebrates or plants. Let's be real. This has been my whole thing, trying to get people to care. Um, Because – but – like vertebrate paleontology is super charismatic, you know, dinosaurs, everybody's super into that. But if you've ever found a bone, like a fossil bone, it doesn't look like anything. Like it does take a lot of imagination to see like a leg bone and be like, Oh, this is from a mammoth. Like, did it, like you have to think about okay, it. But like, this is also, have you, you know, when you see this, you know, breaking news, it comes out in New Scientists, it comes out on all of like the, the blogs and it's like, we found this new dinosaur and it's got this, like somebody's drawn a picture of the dinosaur. And yes. then like, you're the idiot who's a scientist and you're like, I'm going to click on that link. And you realize that what they've seen is like a toe bone. And then you look at like <sighs> the amount of extrapolation and imagination to go from like a toe bone to this beautiful, like resplendent dinosaur, like running through the savannah, you know, like he's like doing his thing. And it's like, I mean, the art people on that should get paid double. That's just, it's very impressive, I have to say. Exactly. There's so much, like, there's so much extra work that goes into it versus, like, you know, you see a leaf and you're like, that's from a plant. And it's like, that's easy. Um, But that also, yeah, that's part of the reason why I really like doing outreach because like people get really excited and I can talk about that a little bit later, but Kenya, I want to talk about Kenya. So most of what I was doing while I was there was looking at the paleobotanical collections because so the nice thing about the national museums of Kenya, um, you cannot export fossils. So any, any material that is, you know, found in Kenya, you have to have a permit and it has to stay in Kenya, which I'm totally on board with. Slightly inconvenient because I live on the other side of the planet. And so the fossils that I was studying, I had to go to Kenya three times to see them. Um, But 
like that's a good you know, system. I, yeah yeah i think it's a very good system i'm you know very happy that and also let's be real okay the problem with plant fossils is they're just either impressions or like a carbon film on a rock so they are mostly rock um they're so heavy because <laughs> they're just rocks. Oh, yeah. Of course. Uh, I wouldn't have yeah. thought of that. Right? And that's the thing. Because, like, if you have, like, a bone, you can prep it out and, like, make it to be basically the size of the bone. But, like, you can't take the leaf out. <laughs> like, it's... Mm-hmm. it's the yeah, it's gone. Yeah. But, yeah, exactly. So, um, that's a thing. And as one of my colleagues once said, you can't get big leaves out of small rocks. Mm-hmm. I was working in the tropics. These leaves were enormous, um, which means the rocks were enormous. <laughs> oh, lovely. Uh, it, yeah, and it was really fun. Like, it's super cathartic. So um, I normally talk to paleontologists, so I'm excited that I get to explain this to you. So in most types of paleontology fieldwork, let's, let's say you're looking for dinosaurs, because everybody is. All right. So if you're trying to find a dinosaur, you have to prospect. So you will wander around outside in the hot, hot sun, um, looking for bits of bone. And when you okay, find, I want to of- look for a parasaurolophus. Can I find a parasaurolophus, please? Of course you can. I hope so. Thank I have you. faith in you. Let's look for one. Okay, great. So you're you gonna look at the Eric. I am so excited about this. I hope we can <laughs> We're find looking Eric. For Eric. All right, Eric. Cool, cool, cool. So if you're looking on the ground, you're looking for bits of bone. And if you can find bone on the ground, so like you're looking over in the hot sun, you got your 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 your, your back starting to hurt. Um, yeah. I've done this. It's, it's very uncomfortable. Okay, so then you finally find these bits of bone, and then you have to figure out where in the rocks they came out of. And then once you find the layer of rocks where your bones are coming from, then you can try to figure out, like, is, is this where Eric's hiding? So it's it's a it's a process. Um, paleobotany is a little bit different because animals only have one body, and so they they don't normally normally just like lose bits of it. They keep um, them together when they die. They don't like yeah, they lose keep, a leg yeah. and then like walk away and then lose another arm. Okay, mm-hmm. Ex- exactly. So basically, you get with with some exceptions of like you know trilobites that molt. Basically, you get one chance to find an animal. Um, that's obviously not how plants are. Plants just like willy nilly lose bits. Um, that's how they do. And so you have a lot more chances to find plant material. Um, and it's funny, there's this perception that plant fossils are rare and they're not, they're not rare at all, but they are not found in the same like places that you find, um, animal material. So you don't tend to find like dinosaurs and plants preserved in the same place. They might be nearby, but never in the same place. And so because vertebrate paleontology is like the exciting paleontology, people think, well, I haven't found any leaves. There must not be any. Like, no, 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 you're looking in the wrong place. So what we have to do is we will look at the rocks and you can get really good at recognizing it's, it's a pattern. You're just looking for a pattern because um, in order for fossils to form, you need something to die and then be rapidly buried. That's what you need. So if you can find like layers that are close together, like that are like different colors, it's like, oh, that might be sand. And oh, there's mud on top. Let's look there. You can get pretty good at in- increasing your chances of finding leaves. And the thing about it is like the dinosaur bone 
you know, if you, let's say you got, you know, Eric's big femur, uh, big leg bone. He can lose little bits of that, you know, the weather away that we'll find and trace back. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll still have most of a femur. But leaves don't do that. You don't get leaves weathering out because they would just be destroyed. So instead, what you have to do is remove blocks of rock with a pickaxe. Uh, it's so much fun. <laughs> like... Are you doing all of this above ground or below ground? Like, do, how do I imagine this? Like, do you dig a hole and then look at the, sh- at the layers or do you look at, like, natural rock formations and then at the layers? Okay. So, if I'm in the field, I will be looking at the natural lo- natural rock layers. Um, I'll see stripes and, like, okay, that's cool. Um, and then we dig, we dig couches. So, we dig back and out. So that we can try to, okay, so let's say you're looking at a hill, okay? You're looking at a hill. Uh Um, You will dig back into the hill and then laterally and down. So you're basically going to take Mm -hmm. a big chunk out of the hill because you need to be able to get these blocks out. Then you can see those layers as well, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing too. Like the, uh, once you get, so the outside is exposed to the elements. So it's going to be a little bit harder to see. So then you can go further back. Like, okay, this is the layer that we want. And it's really fun because I wish I had an example. Uh, (laughs) There, I don't have it. But I'm imagining here, like you. you have the couch back and the back of the couch is like where you see the layers and then you have to like cut into one layer yes. and like pull that out, like kind of So it's that. it's slightly uh, less finessed than that. Um, <laughs> Do you use dynamite? I just as a question. I have not, but <laughs> one could. Um, uh-huh. So, okay, let's, ima- all right, hold on. I have I have a prop here. Okay, so, all right, so we've got our, hold on. Uh, Wait, we we're going to make Yoram explain what you're doing as you show the prop, just for the for the listeners. Okay, yeah. okay. I have, oh, you got to be able to see it. I have a pile of books. Yeah, like a stack of books, different kinds of books. I can see different layers, and I see okay. some of the layers might have covered the other layers quickly, so that's why I want to look. <laughs> exactly. Can exactly. you see that from the books? Can you really see that, Yoram? he is clearly secretly a geologist doing a great job yeah okay so this okay so you're looking at the this is the whole hillside and so we're going to take our pickaxe and just take out a whole chunk of books okay so then what we're going to do is we, we have these books um and we are going to take so we 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 used a pickaxe to get them out to get this big chunk out well, this is really big and heavy, and we also can't see anything. The, the leaves that we need are somewhere hidden inside. So then what we're going to do is we're going to take a little hammer, and we're going to tap the side of it. And if you tap the side of it, it's just going to come apart at the layer where the leaf is. So it basically opens like a book. And surprise, there's a leaf inside. Wait, why is it coming apart? The fact that the leaf is there is already making it like unstable because there's a gap there. So that will, oh, okay, that will help it come apart. Exactly. Uh-huh. Which is fantastic because so um, if you so you have all of these layers and when you try to break it open, you, you know, you tap it, you know, tap the side of it, it will break at the point of weakness. The point of weakness is the place where the leaf is because it is disrupting those nice layers, which is really convenient, actually. That's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thank, thank you, plants. Once again, you've done us a solid, as you always do. Is this like a, a like a memory aid? If the, the point of weakness is where the leaf is, 
It sounds oh. like something you would teach to undergrads. Oh my goodness! I should. I should. I'm. I, I'm so clever. I wish I. Had <laughs> I mean, this. you said it. <laughs> I know. Words just come out of my mouth. Um, but yeah, and so poetry. So you have to do it over and over and over. And like I said you can't get big leaves out of small rocks. And so some of the leaves that I was working with were at least dinner plate size. And so you need rocks that are much larger than that in order to make sure that you're getting as much leaf as possible. So we, we took out hillsides of rock because, wow. so one of the things that I did was, um, so you can look at the size and shape of leaves to estimate temperature and precipitation. I mentioned that before, but mm -hmm. one of the other things that we wanted to look at was um, ecology and diversity. And so in, under, in order to do um, like diverse, statistical di uh, diversity estimates, you need to have a pretty decent sample size. Um, and so we would do this process, we would do a census collection where we would spend a whole day at an outcrop taking out blocks of leaves and identifying um, as many different things on any given block as we could until we had identified at least 300 specimens. And oh, so wow. at least 300 specimens, but it depended on there's like analyses that you can do to make sure that you are getting enough mm -hmm. statistical coverage. So you might have to stay there for a while. There are these analyses and sometimes biologists don't do it. And biologists, you really should be doing these kind of power, power um, yes. <laughs> calculations. Yes. Is that what it's called? Po power analyses. Yeah. So, yeah. So we would be doing, we were doing rarefaction. Um, and so just, you know, testing rarefied richness um, at a given sample, sample size, how many different species. Species. Just like Ali is doing like a kind of um, a curve going towards an asymptote. The idea is that you sample yes. enough so that the, the chances of getting more samples or getting more specimens with increased sampling become smaller and smaller. And basically, eventually, the chances of increasing the number of specimens with more sampling becomes close to zero. And then you can say, okay, we've basically, you know, sampled as much as we need to to get a good representation. That's that's the idea. And 100%. Yeah, you know, we should be all doing this for our science. And I think a lot of scientists aren't doing it. So just like, well done, Ali. Do this. I hate, this is very common in paleobotany. Um, yeah. Because, I think in, but, in our field, we're like, um, N equals three. That's enough, right? Like, okay, we need four for good measure. Okay, hold on. That is like a stereotype of paleontology in general. Yeah, it's like, oh, N equals one? You've got something? Go team. But like, paleobotany, we are spoiled. Like, people, like I said, people think that like plant fossils are rare. No, they're really not. Like, yeah. My sample size, oh my goodness, and thousands, easily thousands of leaves. Like, it, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's it, it leaves. What is the level of detail that you can get from, from a fossil? Like, do I, oh. I, I think I remember reading somewhere that on some ferns, fossils, they could count stomata. So, like, something that's really hard to close to impossible to see with the eye and you need a microscope to see them. Yes. Um, is that, like, does, is that for most, like, leaf fossils <sighs> okay. or is that for special cases only? It is, it's not every leaf fossil, but it's much more common than people think. Um, I did not have that kind of preservation because, okay, East Africa is geologically very interesting um, because of the Rift Valley. Um, so the fossil site that I was working at is roughly 18 million years old 
at that time, there was an active volcano, like, right there. Um, <laughs> like, right there. Um, so, Because I was working on uh, Rasinga Island, which is in Lake Victoria. Um, but because of the volcanism, there wait, wait, is... Victoria just- is, a, is a state in Kenya. Is that correct? Lake Victoria. Lake Victoria. Okay, sorry. It is a lake in Kenya. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, lake uh, Rasinga Island is, in Lake is Victoria. Is there a waterfall there? Uh, like, I'm trying to... Uh, I have no... That's not in... I don't think that's in the Kenya. I think that might be in oh, Tanzania? Yeah. Question Sorry, mark? guys. My, my geography is terrible. Um, All I know about Kenya is what I know from having been in Kenya. On the border Um, of Zambia and Zimbabwe. Okay, awesome. Sorry, carry on. It's over there. Um, Yeah. Opposite. Basically opposite from from Kenya. Um, But anyway, so my fossil leaves had just the weirdest preservation. Um, I've only... I saw it one other place and it was on Twitter. (laughs) Uh, Someone posted like, these are weird fossils. I'm like, oh my God, that's what mine look like. So, um, so... Calcium carbonate, it's it's calcite. Um, it is a tr- like milky translucent mineral, um, and it would replace the leaves. So the organic material in the leaf was replaced with calcium carbonate. So there was an impression from the original leaf, and the leaf had been replaced with like shiny calcite. It's weird. I've never seen anything like it except for one other time. Um, so I did not have any fancy cuticle. So, but sorry, how how did that get there? Because calcium carbonate is basically like it's like what shells are made out, like snail yes. shells and stuff like that. So how did yes. that get to a leaf impression? Oh, I, well, I'm so excited! I get to be a <laughs> geologist. Okay, so fossils are buried in the dirt, um, mm-hmm. and they are okay. So how to become a fossil? You die, you get buried, you become fossilized, and then you're found. Okay, the become fossilized part is important because you are buried and the minerals, it's easier if you think of like a bone. So the minerals of the bone um, will become inundated, or so the bone will become inundated with groundwater. And Mm -hmm. groundwater is very mineral rich. And so chemistry happens and you will have um, replacement of the minerals in the bone by the minerals in the groundwater. This is part of the reason why bone, like fossil bone, tends to be the same color as the sediment that com- it comes out of. So there are, um, like, there's an Allosaurus skeleton that I can't remember where it came from because I am not that kind of paleontologist that has black bones because wow. it came out of these black rocks. Um, but, okay, and that's basically what happened. When these leaves were buried, they were, the sediments were inundated by this groundwater. And so the minerals in the leaves were replaced by this calcium carbonate. Um, Mm -hmm. Like I said, literally only seen it once before. But um, I have colleagues, we were grad students together, but now we're all like grownups, who did field work um, in New Mexico. And the leaves that you'll find in New Mexico, this is from the Paleocene, like 66 million years immediately after the extinction of the dinosaurs, like dinosaurs gone, look at these leaves spoiler alert the plants the plants they survived the dinosaurs not so much plants survived just plants did great uh actually plants actually did fairly fairly well considering the situation (laughs) um but the leaves that you'll find there you'll have this beautiful cuticle preservation and i have a friend who actually does uh pco2 he does paleo co2 reconstructions by looking at stomata from so he's trying to work out how much carbon dioxide there was in the atmosphere 
based yeah cool yeah by looking at 66 million year old leaves and it's it's amazing so like that is something that other people can do i cannot but there is sometimes you have terrible preservation you're like there was a leaf here yep um <laughs> it's, it's gone it's not it's there gone. anymore <laughs> not there anymore but sometimes um so okay the thing that the thing about fossils is sometimes they're bad and they they're often incomplete um and the thing about leaves mm-hmm. is they're pretty fragile and like they rip and we're basically like i'm basically looking at the paleo forest floor and if you think about like the leaf litter in a forest floor those leaves are not pretty and imagine what they look like 20 million years later like they're not yeah if you think about like they're all rotting in one season like from autumn to spring they're all yeah. gone and then somehow yeah. these ones managed to survive what 60 million years hundreds of million like how yeah. how <sighs> rapid burial but that only gives you so much but yeah so some of these leaves are incomplete in fact the majority of my leaves were incomplete and so we have we have creative things that we can do to figure out like you know figure out what we're missing and it's actually it's really cool because we test these things on modern leaves so that we can apply them to these fossil leaves so um you can actually use the density of venation in a leaf to estimate its size Mm-hmm. Which is okay. really, really cool. So uh, how many how many of the small veins it has per surface area, basically? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. And, and so you can use that. If you have an incomplete leaf, um, you can get a rough idea of how big this leaf is. Um, you can also tell, you talked about leaf thickness earlier. That's actually really important because leaf thickness um, is, a, is related to leaf lifespan because... Obviously, if you have, if you're just going to lose your leaves every year, you're not going to make them like super hefty because like that's a lot of work for something you're just going to drop versus if you're going to have the leaves for a long period of time, you're going to put some effort in. So unfortunately, these are impressions. So we cannot like actually measure the thickness of the leaf, but we can use a proxy. So it's not even a proxy because like it's a... You can measure the thickness of the leaf petiole, so basically the stalk of the leaf, um, because the heavier the leaf, the thicker the petiole you need to hold it up. Like, this is just physics. Oh, of course. Yeah. One thing I'm thinking with your field is, like, it it involves much more, like, lateral and creative thinking than I would, like, compared to our field, which is very much, like, most, like, so we're molecular biologists trained, so most of what you can do, you think of an idea, but the whole purpose of the idea is it should be measurable, and it should be measurable within, like, of a quite confined environment like I can put some plants in a greenhouse in the lab and then make the measurements with what we have and the money we have etc etc but you seem like you have much more creativity and like an almost artistic vision as far as like I'm seeing part of a leaf can I imagine how the rest of it like it's a really that's a really nice side of of your science that's so creative as well that's really cool yeah it's it's it takes some getting used to because yeah especially if you're coming from a much more like I don't know, straightforward, like, yeah, you like, see this, bam, bam, it is bam. this. Yeah. yeah, and so coming to paleontology, where it's like, imagination, uh, <laughs> it does take some getting used to. And the other thing, too, is, like, I came from a primarily biology background. Like, my background was primarily, um, like, biology, ecology, that sort of stuff. And so moving to geology, where 
geology is like four dimensional. And that took some getting used to because like biology is too, but you're like the fourth dimension, like time. I mean, it's funny. Like I have, I have said unironically two million years. That's not very long. Yeah. And if you talk to anyone who doesn't work in deep time, they're like, excuse me, two million years is a very long time. Deep time yeah. is such a cool des description for that. Like, I wish I would yeah. have su uh, such a cool name for our field of study. Like, we're not working in deep time. We're working no. in, like, hot hot greenhouses. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it, it does. It takes a lot of... It takes a lot of, yeah, like lateral thinking. And that's one of the things that I really, really enjoy because I'm kind of a time traveler, but I, and I like, I like to, I like sorry, to say that sorry, that's time. going to be the title of the show now. I'm kind of a time traveler <laughs> with Allie Baumgartner. Y'all exactly. note. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. Like I, I'm a time traveler and I also like to say that I am the context. So Let me tell you a story real quick about um, when I got really sassy, but almost got a postdoc out of it. Um, so I am, I am a paleobotanist. I do paleoecology, paleoclimate, paleoenvironment, that sort of stuff. And I work with paleoanthropologists in East Africa. And I absolutely love that. Like, like early human origins, fascinating. Think it's so cool. Um, really excited to be a part of the project. But the thing that I find fascinating is that, like you talked about with the dinosaurs, like, you know, you found this bone and you reconstructed a whole thing. Um, paleoanthropologists, who I, I love you forever, but they will find a single animal and reconstruct an entire environment. And oh, it's like, yeah. whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. We're not doing that. Um, and like, I get really fired up about it because here's the other thing. Okay. Oh, especially <sighs> like, sorry, especially when it's like large animals. I mean, like if it's an insect, I'm kind of like, well, that's, that's doing a lot of things as far as like shaping its environment. It's like, like an elephant. Like, <sighs> real, really? Like it knocks okay. down trees, I guess. <laughs> okay. So here's, here's, okay. Let me give you, okay. Let me give you, I'm so fired <laughs> up. So let me give you an example, which, okay. They're on the right track. I let me. I'll give them that. So, for example, primates. These are paleoanthropologists, like monkeys. Okay, so they'll find a primate. They'll find a limb bone, and then that'll give you an idea about how it moves. Uh -huh. And so, based on how this move, this animal moves, they will talk about the environment. So, like for example, if you like think about like a gibbon with their big old long arms, they're brachiating. Yeah. They're they're using their arms to get through the forest, and that does it's say moving. something. It's got to have a jungle, yeah. Okay, yeah, and that mm -hmm. that does say something about the structure of a forest a little bit. But mostly, what they'll end up saying is like, "Oh, this is a closed environment." Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Or, you know, oh, we, we found, I don't know, a hippo. That's an open environment. Like, okay, but what does that mean? Like, open and closed is, oh, these, that's not real. <laughs> so, like, just like, just for some context, a closed environment would be kind of like a densely, like a, a jungly, kind of very densely, yeah. like open would be like a savanna, like, you know, no big trees, just kind of grassland, right. kind of what. And it's like these two extremes, like this very dichotomous open versus yes. closed as well, right? Yeah. Right, exactly. And like, like I said, that's a start. But there's so much more to it. Like there was a really cool paper that came out. It was a, it was a uh, like in the 80s um, that was a fantastic con con 
collaboration, that's the word, collaboration <laughs> between a botanist and a mammologist. And so they were looking at the composition of mammal communities versus the composition of plant communities in forests on different continents, the, all of these tropical forests on different continents. And they showed that like, hey, closed forest can be really different in different places. Um, because mm-hmm. like in some places you have lots of lianas, some places you don't have any lianas, like there's no vines. And so that's going to affect the kind of things that live there. And as a reminder, vines are sneaky. Vines are sneaky. Exactly. Yeah. So just saying that like, oh, this is a closed environment. Like, no, 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 no. There's like, there's more to it than that. So anyway, I wanted to, I applied for this postdoc with a mammologist who does like, or paleomammologist who does uh, ecometrics. So he looks at the shape of animal bones to get a sense of their environment, uh, which is really, really cool. And basically what I'm doing with plants. Um, so I applied to work with him in the first paragraph of my cover letter. Oh my God. I was so sassy. I uh, went on about how like plants are not just your green background and how <laughs> you shouldn't be using animals to Excellent. reconstruct environments. Um, I actually sent it to my advisor to proofread and he like tried to tone it down. I was like, no. I'm going all out. I actually did hear back from that about that. I didn't end up getting it, but I did hear back from the guy about it because he was so intrigued by this cover letter that I sent him being maybe slightly rude um, because like, no, I'm going to go full paleolorax and like speak for the trees. Like you know, you, you will not say bad things about the forest that I'm working in. Um, yeah, and I, yeah, and I'm actually working on that paper. It's in review. I need to finish the edits. I'm working on lots and lots and lots of figures. That's part of the reason it's taking so long, is we keep having to add figures. So, yeah, <laughs> this is the way. This is the way of um, publication. Honestly, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. It, I had to submit it in order to graduate. I submitted it in May. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, you know, at at the same time, yeah, at the same time, there's also been other things going on in the world. So, and I also started a new job. (laughs) So, like, I've had a lot going on. I mean, I'm on the other side of that now. I work, like, as an editor, and I definitely, like, you when you're the one submitting the paper, you're like, why does this take so long? And then when you're on the other side, you're like, oh my goodness, I understand. Like it's, it's other, like everybody has their own lives. It's a lot of work. Like it's just, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, and you don't want to tell an author, you need to get revisions in by, by Saturday when those will be shitty revisions. You want to have like a great paper that's comes mm-hmm. out in the end. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. All I, of this stuff. I have requested so many extensions. But I am requesting extensions, not just ghosting the journal. So, you know. <laughs> I think that's a good thing. I'm sure you're making your editor very happy. I, I have a question, like coming back to, to the fossils, because I oh, yes. I looked, um, like I, I watched one of your videos on Instagram where you were doing a cast um, of a bone in this case. 
Um, but you also said like you always do two copies when you do um, experiments on fossils, right? Um, sometimes you have to destroy the fossil, so you make a cop like you you make a cast that's like a physical copy, and you make a digital copy. And I wondered mm -hmm. um, because you mentioned you had to travel so often to to Kenya. Are there now like digital tools available that you can that help with like your your work as a paleobotanist? Can you scan the leaves somehow and work with them from home? I, okay, so the reason I had to take three trips was because I photographed them all. Um, and yeah, I had, I had, I didn't photograph all of the thousands, but I did photograph hundreds of leaves. So while I was, the last trip that I took to Kenya, I think it was the last trip I took to Kenya, um, the National Museums of Kenya got this really big grant from Amazon? Question mark? Google? Okay. Amazon? One of them. We might, so, we might just like, we'll beep that out because like Jeff is not giving us any money and like he should be giving us money if he wants us to mention his, um, his website. But they did give money to the National Museums of Kenya to digitize their collections, Very which cool. was really cool. So they actually started with archaeology, which made me sad because I don't work in archaeology and so I couldn't see what they were doing. Um, but the last trip there, they were they had made it up to paleontology. So I actually had some conversations with the guys that were doing the scans. And, okay, to answer your actual question, at this moment, I, other than photographs, I haven't really done anything like any digital representations of my fossils. And I don't know. Okay. Cause the problem is like the, okay. In order to identify and differentiate my leaves, I really do need very high resolution images. So, um, as I mentioned, um, you shouldn't be basing, um, like you shouldn't identify plants based on their leaves, but that's all I've got. So <laughs> that's what I'm doing in, in, in order to uh, differentiate the leaves. So fun fact, I swear, like 90% of the leaves from my fossil sites in Kenya look the same um, because oh, there, yeah. because there's, there's a relationship between leaf size and shape and temperature and precipitation, which means that basically because I'm in the tropics, all of the leaves are long linear with a drip tip. Oh, that's like, like everybody. Of course, it makes sense. Like they're all different species, but they're responding to the same environmental factors. So within their genetic limitations, they're trying to make themselves fit that environment as much as possible over evolutionary time. And they all start to look a little bit alike. Wow, yeah, cool. That, yeah. Oh, it's cool, but it's terrible <laughs> to try to tell them apart. Um, Again, so I, I bring you back to these spin effects. Like I bring you back <laughs> to like, they're like, it's really right. hot and dry here. I'm just going to be a straw now. Like that's my thing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So the way that we differentiate the species is by looking at their venation. So primary venation is the midrib. Secondary venation are the ones that are coming off the midrib. Okay. So like the big fat vein down the center of the leaf is the midrib for those of you playing at home and then like the little bits coming off. Yeah. If you think of a feather. Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, if you think of a feather, so like the actual like stalk of the feather, that's the primary vein. And then all of the little like... I was going to say leaflets coming off the feather. Um, all the little fluffy bits coming off the feather. Flufflets? Yeah, I, I want to use the adjective like fluffy. I am not. I don't work with animals. <laughs> um, so those are the secondary veins. In leaves, 
you will then you will then continue to connect all of those veins. So then the the littler veins that connect between the secondary veins, those are tertiary veins, and then the little littler ones that connect between the tertiary veins are quaternary. Sometimes you'll get quinternary. Um, so I need to be able to see excruciatingly high detail on these leaves in order to differentiate them because like the shape and the angle and the number of these of these smaller veins is how I is often how I can tell the difference and so in order to do that I would have to take very fancy pictures uh, and I I have to double check like I just triple check you know, like if I zoom in, can I see all of the venation I've got? Cause I have to leave this country and I won't be able to look at my fossils to verify. Um, so in my, Oh, sorry. Do you like then have like computer programming then to like help you work out the angles and stuff? Or is it like you look at it and you're like, Oh, I know what that is. Like, is it, uh, how so, much can you do it automated these days? Oh, nothing I do is automated. Um, so <laughs> oh dear. this is, um, Geology and paleontology is really, really old fashioned. We literally measure rocks with sticks. Okay. Like we do not go into <laughs> technology. Amazing. So I, I, the way that I would measure vein angle is like I had. Guys, guys, she has, she has a rule. It's like a protractor attached to two sticks. So it's like a rule, two rulers, which have an, a brace at the angle. I've never seen this before even. Yeah, and it has, like, in the middle, it has all of the angles. Wait, where's the... There we go. In the middle, it has all of the angles. So that is how... This is a fancy show and tell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is how I... This is how I did the vein angle for my fossils. Like, I measured them one by one uh, just to make sure. Um, it was a very slow process. That's why it took me three trips. We're going to need a photo of you with your special angulator, which is what I'm calling it. <laughs> for the it, has, it has a name, and I don't remember what it is. Is uh, it like, an angle finder or something? At least that's like from woodworking. I know this as an angle finder. I, I don't. Somebody, someone referred to it as a, a name, and I don't remember what it was, which is super helpful. Um, I am but I, I am Googling so much in this episode. I just Googled, like, what is somebody who studies feathers called? Apparently, there's not a thing. They, they brought up ornithology, which is, like, birds, generally. So if anyone knows what a feather studier, like, featherology is, please get in touch with us. Would it be, like, plumology? I'm so curious. That's cute. That could be, like, though, like, other plumes, like, rivers yeah. or, like, sand uh -huh. formations, but... I, I do like plumology. I really appreciate nice. that I'm like sending y'all to the Google. Um, this yeah. makes me very happy. Yeah, oh my goodness, you're right. It's plumology. Amazing. And there's already an ologies episode of it. So if you guys follow the podcast Ologies with Ali Ward, which you should all be doing, there is already plumology with feathers. <laughs> I wonder if that's why I know it because I listen to so great amazing I'm, I'm very proud of myself because I, I apparently i was paying attention um it's also <laughs> like it's also good evidence that if you have a passion no matter how bizarre it is you're like you know what i really i really like feathers guys like i just or like i really like rocks or i really like licking things there's a science out there for you and you can be that kind of expert and you know everybody will call you dr Lock rock licker or dr feather studier and it will be great exactly no yeah so 
So finally answer your question. <laughs> I, at this moment, I don't know if the resolution is high enough uh, because I talked, I talked to the guys doing the scanning and they wanted to scan my leaves so badly. They were so excited about it because it was different. It was a challenge because everything else they'd been doing were like jaws and skulls and whatever. Those are boring. Those are easy. But I have just slabs and slabs and slabs of, you know, rocks with leaves on top of them and i think that in the future we probably could um but you would need really high resolution and you would also have to do the kind of scanning um that has like actually shows like a picture um like does the color and everything on it um because and gets like a more like 3d perspective as well maybe you get like yeah, if you've got like yeah. depth issues as, as well, that seems problematic. Yeah. And I mean, that would be super cool. I would love for that to work. I don't know if we're quite there now. And also, I had a time limit with my dissertation. So <laughs> I'm just going to do the thing that I know that works. Um, so we'll go from there. Yeah. In, in, in our field as well, you have like a lot of stuff where you can do some automation, but a lot of it is still... There's a lot of manual selection to start with. So you would like trace, for in your example, you would trace out the veins first by hand on the computer and then the computer would tell you the angle between those lines that you traced. Mm-hmm. But it's like, it's anyway still a lot of manual labor as far as yeah. processing everything. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I did a lot of work at the front so that the robots could do the work at the back. Because um, like, I... I don't like telling people this because they get a weird impression, but the way that I process all of the photos is in Photoshop because that's what Mm -hmm. it's for. Um, Like, so like I have to remove all of the background so I can figure out what's just leaf. And then if the leaf has teeth, I will digitally remove the teeth so that I can measure like the area of the teeth versus the area of the overall leaf. Um, But like telling people that you're Photoshopping fossils not a good idea. Mm. <laughs> don't don't put it like that. <laughs> uh, did the like the the travel restrictions then make the work for paleo botanists much harder now? Because if you is it just Kenya that keeps a, a, a strong hold on their fossils, or is it like in general? And does it mean that you always have to travel to the place where the fossil is from to actually study the fossils? That's so. That's becoming. Fortunately, that's becoming more more common, and I like I'm very much on board with this because like there are a lot of countries where people just took the fossils, and that's yeah. bad. Um, but the other thing too is like the way that the way that it works in like Kenya, you also have to have like Kenyans involved, like Kenyan scientists. So for every oh that's good. Paleo- yeah yeah it's fantastic. So for any paleontology like uh project in Kenya with a permit, you have to have at least one, um, like professional Kenyan paleontologist involved. And it's, it's fantastic because there are really good paleontologists in Kenya. Uh, there is, I did not, for whatever reason, the stars did not align and I never got to meet her in person, but there is a paleobotanist. Her, uh, her name is Rahab and she is a, she works with phytoliths. And so phytoliths are basically plant sand. Um, So you can, um, so it's very common in like grasses. Um, Basically, they're just little bits of silica, which is sand, um, that form within 
the plants. Um, they are often used as a defense, as a like uh, herbivore deterrent. Um, it's very common in grass, but you can use the like shape of these phytoliths to. Um, there is some like taxonomic relationship, so you can figure out broadly who did this come from. But you can also uh, sometimes use them to um, estimate canopy cover. Oh wow! Which, I didn't know that. It's just which is really really cool. Is it because they're changing size based on how much light is getting through? Because they're also having a role in reflecting light within the plant. Is that part of it? Uh, they're, I- they're changing shape. Okay. And I think it has to do with how I can't remember. I don't study this. I know they change shape though. So, so just you, like, you can use, yeah. Just as an aside, I think we've done a blog on this at one point. I think um, rubber trees, Ficus elastica, actually makes these um, phytoliths inside them, and they look like little bundles of grapes almost that yes. are like hanging on the. It's like or something that like like a wasp. Um, kind of nest or something hanging inside a cave that's just like hanging down in the plant and yeah as you said they can be quite spiky and mean and like Mm -hmm. hurt the mouth of a herbivore but they can also maybe have this role in in reflecting light i think if maybe i don't yeah i'm not sure so there's a paleobotanist uh she is at the la brea tar pits now um her name is reagan dunn and she studies phytoliths uh and it's amazing it's so cool and like what you said with lateral thinking like okay what can we learn about like the dirt in plants about the environment (laughs) it's so cool but yeah that's something that Rahab does and so she's involved with a lot of this research um and so I know most of the paleobotanists I know actually tend to work in country um not always but like most of the like American paleobotanists I know work in the US um the Canadians I know tend to work in Canada um and that does make it easier because you don't have to worry about like I have to go to literally the other side of the planet <laughs> to see my fossils um but the other thing too is that um a lot of these collections I'm sure this will shock you um People don't really care about paleobotany. There's not a lot of money in paleobotany. Mm. Um, yeah, so you have to be careful. Um, yeah, I was, yeah. When I was applying for grants, like so often, you would run into, well, there are no plant fossils there. Like, well, no, there are. Just the vertebrate people didn't find them, um, and so because also they were looking in a different place, as you already explained. They're not even looking. They're not even looking for them. They didn't. It's not that they didn't find them. It's like they didn't look, and therefore yeah. didn't find. Yeah, like, oh, well, it wasn't sitting on top of my dinosaur, so I didn't see it. Yeah, no, it's fine. Um, But that means that, like, when I went to Kenya, I did two weeks of field work. That's not actually that much. Like, geologists, like, paleontologists will do, like, two months of field work. I did two weeks. But I brought back back enough fossils that um, I filled the Land Rover. (laughs) So we bought these. I posted the picture on my Instagram somewhere. Um... Uh, we would we bought these metal trunks when we were in Kenya, and we would fill them with rocks. And so we like we take the rocks, rocks, we wrap them in toilet paper, and then like tape them together, and then we put them in a uh, metal uh, uh, trunk, like a locker. And, it's a kind of like a like an army locker, is what I'm imagining. Yeah, like a foot locker sort of thing. Oh yeah, perfect. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, and then we put them in the back of the Land Rover, and I filled the Land Rover all by myself. And then when we brought what them back doing? to Kenya. Or, excuse me, brought them back to the museum in Kenya. Um, I 
increased the size of the paleobotany collection by like 50% all by myself. Wow. <laughs> so, like, yeah, because there wasn't a whole lot before that. And I also I had mean- really big leaves. <laughs> This is a topic I want to just like touch on quickly because you've already mentioned it and you've already kind of said how like pro you are. It's a really important thing that's kind of being only discussed now, unfortunately, this idea of, you know, countries that are rich and have the ability to do research and countries that don't have those resources. Um, And I think what you pointed out, the fact that you, if you are bringing the money, if you're coming from a foreign country, you have to be involving people on the ground it's it's i mean they know more about that area obviously they're the experts um they just don't have the financial resources often um and i just came i just found out about a term actually today which is called parachute sign Mm -hmm. which yeah i mean i had heard of this phenomenon but i didn't know the name for it and it's it's basically that it's this idea that there are so many and especially in the field of um conservation biology there's so many scientists from very rich countries so europe um also australia america like north america the u.s basically in canada um just parachuting into other countries with the money doing science taking the authorship often taking samples back for themselves so this would be like ali like just collecting all those fossils and taking them back home which she's not doing um and like yeah basically getting the knowledge and then in the case of conservation biology not even sometimes not even like communicating back to the people on the ground what the discoveries are and what should be done and giving the resources to do it. And this is like, this is horrendous. I mean, this is something we really need to be fixing with science because what is the point of doing science if you're just getting publications? Like the point of science is not publications. It's bettering humanity and improving the world. And yeah, it's not stamp collecting. Like you're not just trying to like yeah. collect the whole set. Like, oh, I, I did nature and science. Yeah, and it's it's it was so eye opening when I was in Kenya because so the I was a part of a large research group that works on Rasinga Island. Um, it's been going on for a long time, and the way that like the locals are integrated into the research is is really cool. So like the the PI for the project um, also like helps he he helps with a nonprofit that is on the island he is not in charge of it he basically just makes sure that like they can get money from americans but like the locals are the ones who are actually like deciding what happens with this money um so like we yeah like we will eat dinner with our field assistants like we're all we're all together and it's really it was really nice it was really fun i got okay so in kenya um every kenyan most every kenyan speaks three languages um english like everyone speaks english um everyone speaks swahili and then everyone speaks like their local tribal language so obviously i speak english um i knew enough swahili to order food um and be generally polite um but i did not i was working in luo land um so like the luo people it was part of their their Mm -hmm. homeland and so they kept trying to teach me words in luo oh it was so hard i can't roll my r's which makes it very (laughs) difficult uh the only thing i could say was thank you um which i think is important but it's a start uh, yeah (laughs) it's a start i would i went to a bar and they gave i ordered a drink in english and they gave me the drink and i said thank you in luo and the bartender got so excited i was like don't get your hopes up that's all i know (laughs) like that's all i got Uh, but yeah yeah, that's such generosity 
It was so, but it was so much fun because, like, I was getting to know these people. Like, I got, to, I got to meet the children of my field assistants. I scared them because they'd never seen a white person before, um, oh, cool. which was like oh. fascinating. Um, mm-hmm. He would like, my, yeah, he was four years old, and this is like a, a, a rural part of, of Kenya, and so he like kept stroking my arm, just like did not believe I was real. It was fascinating, um, but like I know of other research groups that are much more like colonial um and like the researchers will eat together and all of the field assistants are like relegated relegated to do something separate because like we hired a local kenyan cook it was fantastic we ate kenyan food every night like it was delicious it like we had tea time like it was fantastic like you know, we would just eat what you eat in Kenya. And in, like, the more colonial setups, like, the Kenyans would eat Kenyan food all by themselves. And then, like, the 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 American and the Canadian and European whatever researchers would have, like... Potatoes. White, yeah, like, <laughs> like white food. Um, it's like, this is just so strange. I feel like in that situation, the white food would be, like, not only, like, white people, but, like, also, like, the food is white. It's, like, mashed potatoes and cauliflower. <laughs> like, that's yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and it was I, it, it's it's so weird, and it's like why did you why did you come all the way to Kenya if you're not yeah. going to have anything to do with Kenya? Yeah, and you're like describing the part where it's like sad from the point of view of cultural exchange and like personal experience as well. Like that's just like yeah, why would you do that? But like from a global like from from this bigger point of view, of like the the aim of science, like why would you do that, guys? Like we've like I mean, and also like the idea of like you know a rich white dude coming in doing stuff and like look i've made a solution no you haven't you've probably made things work like this is this we've done that let's stop doing that let's let's do participatory like engaged like both ways science where everybody you know this is just yeah well and the uh, other yeah because the thing about it is like i totally understand why they're doing it because i made a joke at the very beginning of my dissertation that some dude tried to explain to me on twitter like I, yes, it was a very good joke. I'm glad I made it. Thank you for explaining it to me. Um, that I was doing the uh, literature review for my research in Kenya because I was there to be the context. I was there to figure out, like, you know, what is the environment that these early hominids were living in. And I realized very quickly that if you want to get, like, a nature or science paper, find a skull. Like, find a skull, call it a new species of human, and, like, you'll get one. Uh, And I made some joke about that on Twitter, and somebody got really upset and, like, was trying to explain to me how important this research is. I'm like, oh, no, I know it is. This is literally what I do. (laughs) But also, like, that's, that's why people go in. Like, that's why people are doing this, because, like, if I can find the skull of some early hominid, like, nature paper, here I come. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the best the, the the new thing I learned is you should then tell them that they're man explaining, and then wait for them to tell you it's not man explain, it's mansplain. <laughs> like that's my new thank you for oh. man explaining that. <laughs> Just oh, like... I love it. Yes. Oh my goodness, I am I'm very much on board with this. <laughs> um, shall we shall we go a bit more to specific plants? Can we ask you what your favorite plant is, or is that putting you on the spot too much? I'm going to give you, like, if you're willing to do this, I'm going to give you, like, a 30 seconds while Yaron plays, like, an intro theme song. Do you reckon? Okay. All right, Yaron, play the music. My 
favorite plant. And just just so you don't feel too much pressure here, like theoretically the idea is to have like a plant species that you found something that you really love. You know, it's something you studied or it's like something you just read a fact about. But Yoram once brought to his favorite plant segments the entire cycads. Like he's like, my favorite plant is all cycads. And I was like, dude, all cycads? It's an order, isn't it? Like, come yeah, on. It's, it's like several levels above, like genus, maybe. I'll accept that. Like, fine. But freaking yeah. cycads? Like, I could give you a genus. Uh, all right, let's go. Okay. Um, this might be a, you might actually already know the answer to this because I once told this story on Instagram last week. So let me tell you a story that I literally told on Instagram last week. Okay. So, you know, the beginning of Jurassic Park when they like first get to the park and they're in the Jeep and Ellie Sattler, who is the best, um, is looking at the, the leaf. And Alan Grant is looking at the sauropod and like turns her and head like, like, dude, dude there's, there's like a, there's a dinosaur. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. So, okay. When I went to Kenya in 20, it was my first trip. So when I went to Kenya in 2017, um, we would go on these, we'd go gallivanting on the weekends. And one of my friends was super into birds and like Kenya is a great place to be if you're into birds. Like mm-hmm. there's obviously so what's what's special about kenyan birds it's like more like larger birds they're traveling large distance i mean they're they're tropical so they're interesting if you're not from a tropical place but also like east africa just tends to have an absurd number of birds um uh yeah like absolutely beautiful so we went on this birding tour in nairobi national park which fun fact is better than a normal tour because in a, I'm sorry, I promise like a twit plant, <laughs> but um, if you do like a normal tour, like a safari drive sort of like game drive in Nairobi national park, like you go from big animal to big animal and they're like, okay, well waiting for the next big animal. But if you go on a bird tour, you don't just ignore like the lions. Um, but then you also get to learn about the, the birds. It's really cool. Oh. Except for I was getting so distracted by the not birds. Um, my favorite plant, and I might cry because like I love them so much, oh, damn. is, uh, and I have a story about that too, is acacia. Oh my god. I love acacia um, so much. I love I, them. I'm just going to tune out now because this will be the acacia podcast from now on. Wait, we're <laughs> going to have a discussion about whether your acacias are really acacias anymore, but off you go. Okay, they're, they're not. not they are not, not quite okay, acacia. Hold on. Hold on. My acacias are not acacia and that devastated me when I found out because I was like, are you telling me they're only in Australia now? Like that's just, yeah. Not okay. I, so okay, as an but, Australian, just like very quickly as an Australian, I acknowledge that it's objectively wrong that the Australian yes. acacias got to be acacias because like, yes. you know, the first ones that were named were not the Australian acacias, but I also find it a little bit funny. Like I, yes, that's basically how I feel about it. Like this is unacceptable, but hilarious. Yes. Um, but yeah, so they're not acacia, but come on, they're acacia. Um, and if I say that, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, so, big tall tree, spiky giraffes eat it. You know, like the Lion King, like, you know, it's just, like, yeah, so it's, it's, it's bad. Like my love of Acacia, I don't know when, like, I always kind of liked them, but like being an American, I never really got to see them. But, um, I went to Kenya, saw them, realized that my life was complete after having seen them, um, came back to the U.S., was watching The Crown, the first season of The Crown, and the part where she goes to Kenya, 
and they started by showing Acacia, and I cried. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> this, is, wow. this is an intense love. Um, I love them. I love what? them so much. You- you got what? Why? Why? I I like plants a lot. I don't know if I've cried about it. Like I've cried about plants, but only when like my experiments have gone very badly in my PhD. You know, like uh, yes. No. Oh, I understand that. <laughs> um, I understand that. Okay. I, what I, about acacias bring tears to your eyes, which is not like the literal thorns in the acacia stabbing you in the eyes? Like okay. what is it? <laughs> Oh my God, literally everything. Okay, so the things I love about acacia are like, they are in the best, objectively best plant family um like okay. and i i will mm-hmm. like i love i love all of the beans like everything in that family like you are my friend and i love you okay. yeah so that's for uh, the is the family yes so, yeah anything love bean. Them. yeah love and they're pretty them. cool they like they can do some cool things that other plants can't do they can fix nitrogen in ways that other plants can't do basically i mean stunning they are stunning um they make really like i like i i even though i don't get to ever work with fruit because i am a paleobotanist and we don't get those like beans love them good good pods they've got like a little potty structure going (laughs) i love everything about acacia but one of the things yes i definitely love about them is the fact that they have little like ant brute squads so um there's giraffes and other herbivores that will uh chew on acacia so like acacia they have these big old spines but that's not always enough so they have the backup of these ants like i said the brute squad that will come and like bother the herbivores um and in exchange for this the selfless plant will provide them with a house or a domitia um so that the you know the ants have a place to live when they're not brutalizing herbivores. And, you know, they'll also give them like gifts, uh, like nectar and stuff. And I think that they're, I vaguely remember hearing once that there might be like a compound or something in the like food that the acacia gives the ants that makes it so the ants can't leave. <laughs> I don't. Oh, it's like a drug. Yeah. They're like getting them addicted. Yeah. I can't remember. I don't know about this. Yeah. I can't remember. I've got to look into this. Precisely. I like vaguely remember this. So if I'm wrong, I apologize. But like, it seems like something Acacia would do. Um, and then like, it's just literally everything, like the shape of them. They have such a, like their the plant habit is so beautiful. Like they just look aesthetically pleasing. Also, they have the itty bittiest little tiny leaflets. Oh my goodness. I love, they're, they're, they're like microscopic. I love them so much. Like every, literally everything about them. There is not an aspect of acacia that I don't like. Um, and people like, people will come for me. Like, you know, don't you know that they'll go all the way through your hiking boots? Like, yes, I'm here for it. Like, I like a plant that can defend (laughs) itself. (laughs) <laughs> yeah you've got to respect that they can't run away so if they're doing everything they can to like prevent like just from being eaten they don't want to be eaten like fair enough man <laughs> like I, I everything literally everything the, when i got to see them in the field i cried like i i and i <laughs> i don't know like normal people like even normal botanists who feel that way about like a plant um but like i have this emotional attachment to acacia so yeah literally everything so basically yeah they're stopping the ants from being able to digest normal food sources and then they're giving them this easy sugar but it's basically like if the ants go away they can't they can't eat their normal food source anymore they're they're hooked on the sugar because they're being prevented from from breaking down and that's insane (laughs) it's mean it is an abusive relationship it's kind of bad but like 
I got to respect a plant yeah. that like, you know, it doesn't mess around. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's kind of upsetting because like when you're a kid, you're told this like story of like, yeah, the, the ants and the acacia. And then when you grow up, you learned like, Oh no, <laughs> it's, it's, it's actually bad. And and the paper that reports this, I think the first report of this, is it's actually called Partner Manipulation Stabilizes a Horizontally Transmitted Mutualism. So it's like the relationship is based on the tree manipulating these poor little <laughs> ants, which is horrific. And, and well done, Trish. That's the other thing, though. That's the other thing, though. Like, that's one of the... Okay, that's one of the things I love about plants is that they don't get enough, like... They don't get enough respect. And so, like, <laughs> no one would expect the plant to be manipulating the insect like yeah and i'm here for it (laughs) i think i mean so we just read we have a plant book club and we just read a book about plants that can kill people and all of these different things and this was like mostly just you know poisonous plants not even the plants that are doing tricky things but the lengths plants are going to to get their way because they can't do other manipulative things. Like, they don't do behaviorally manipulative things. So they do, like, chemically manipulative things. It's so impressive. It's really... Yeah. yeah. I love Plots it. are everything. You heard it here first. <laughs> These are facts. I, I recently... Um, so some of my, my friends from my master's do a paleontology podcast. And so I get to be their plant friend. Uh, and I recently did an episode with them about carnivorous plants. And, oh... I went down like such a rabbit hole about carnivorous plants, like the, and like the murderous plants, the ones that just kill things and don't then eat them. Oh my goodness! Like <laughs> I relate to them so much. Like I secretly want to be a sundew. Like come on. If it's speaking of podcasts, and um, I know that like we mentioned your Instagram a couple of times already, your Twitter, but I know that outreach is very important to you. Like, what is your opinion on on outreach as an active scientist? Like, do you do that just because you personally are really into it, or do you think outreach is something that all scientists or many scientists should be involved in? Oh, ooh, I like this. Okay, so I have been doing some form of outreach since. Oh my goodness, it's been 10 years. So I started off as a tour guide. Like that was kind of my first um, like foray into teaching the public about science. I was a, a tour guide in a natural history museum. Um, and, you know, I, I enjoyed it. But it wasn't until like during my master's that I, because I, I think it was partially because I was doing my own research then, um, that I started doing on Twitter. And that's when I realized that like, there was nothing I wanted more than to convince people that plants were really cool. (laughs) Um, (laughs) A a noble cause, I would say. Yeah. Like I figure you can relate to that. Um, And (laughs) it's just, yeah, it's just something that like, I am, I'm good at it. Like that helps. Like, and it's something that I'm good at, but it's also just something I genuinely enjoy doing. Um, And I have done it in so many different ways. Like I, you know, I have done, more formal tours. I have done um, many podcasts. I have done, you know, I can't get me to stop talking on <laughs> my social media. Um, and it's been, yeah, I think it's really important because it, okay, one of the things that I think about a lot as like 
not a white man scientist. Like, I'm still a white woman, so I got a lot going for me in that respect, but I'm still not a white man. Um, so I'm not the stereotype. <laughs> and so I think a lot about, like, the ways that people expect a scientist to be. And I, in many respects, don't I do not do that. Um, I use the, like, hashtag Ellie Sattler IRL because Ellie Sattler is the only representation that paleobotanists get, and she's fantastic. She literally goes digging through uh, Triceratops poop. Like, she is the best. I hope it's clear to everyone this is the the woman in Jurassic Park, just so you, if you don't know who it is specifically. I think it's clear from the Triceratops poop reference Yes. There. Oh, yeah, sorry. And, well, it's funny, because, like, I didn't watch Jurassic Park until I was, like, 20. Um, so that wasn't anything that got me into paleontology. Um, but, yeah, so, like, I want to show people that there are other ways to be a paleontologist. Like, you don't have to be, like, the Indiana Jones type with, like, oh, I go by myself, I have a whip for no apparent reason. Like, no. <laughs> I it's... break a lot of things. I just, like, break everything I touch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, 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 no. It's so I really like showing people that, like, hey, you don't have to be like that. Um, you can be however you are. That's fine. And I think that's really important because I have gotten – a weird amount of pushback from students, like, cause I, I taught a lot uh, during my PhD. Um, and it was like, there was a certain variety of student who would really push back with the way I explained things because I was approachable and enthusiastic. And apparently that's unprofessional like excuse you i want to make sure you understand this um and it's something that like i think about a lot that i could i could totally morph into like very boring professional scientist who uses words that are way too big that you don't understand like i'm totally capable of it i just don't want to do that because like i like this and i want you to understand me and like it too which is why i made the video about photosynthesis because it is something that i find so interesting and as soon as i start talking about it people like glaze over i'm like 30 seconds come on just give me 30 seconds like we'll get through this and i yeah i just kind of want to show that i also i did field work i enjoyed field work I don't do field work. Like I don't ever need to do that again. Um, I'm very glad that I did it, but I am a museum scientist. Like I, most of my dissertation, most of my research has always been in museums. Like now I literally work in one. Um, so I want to show people like, Hey, you can, you can be a paleontologist. You can one, paleobotanist exists. Two, you can be a paleontologist and not be like this stereotype, like dude alone in the badlands. Like you don't have to do that. And it's been fantastic. I, so ever since I started my job here um, in July, I've been super open about what I do on a daily basis. Like, you know, I post on my stories every single day. <laughs> like everyone knows exactly what I'm doing. And it has been fantastic because I have gotten a surprising number of messages from students asking about working in a museum or like grad school or, you know, things like that. And it's normally 
like it's and it's not even necessarily like women who are reaching out to me. I don't know of many other people who are collections managers who go in depth with what they do like I do. Like some people do, but like I really want everyone to know what goes on behind the scenes because museums are chronically underfunded and that's a whole other discussion. Um but I just want to give people a sense like hey, you got options and like I'll show you what what that is. And so like Yes, I want to talk about like the science that I do. You know, I now it is literally part of my job now to do outreach, which is fun and I enjoy, which is kind of weird because before I was doing it for fun and now like it's also my job and then I'm still doing it for fun. Um, but yeah, I just want to show that's people. Like, that's Yarm with Psycom now. Yarm, you kind of like went from doing it for funsies and now it's your, your yeah. actual paid money job. And yeah, yeah. which, which yeah. is like fun in itself, but also like it takes out the, the, it takes the fun out, out of some of the stuff when I don't know how it is for you, but sometimes then you start like right now, like Tegan and I, we're talking only about stuff that we care deeply about, stuff that genuinely excites us. But when it's your job, suddenly people come to you and have like, I have this random bit. Can you please make it interesting mm -hmm. to people? And you're like, but it's not interesting. Like, I wouldn't pick this <laughs> Like if I had a Everything choice. Is interesting. Exactly. So one of the things that I am doing now is um, I have run social media. I have run my own, obviously. <laughs> this is mine. Um, mm -hmm. But during my PhD, I was actually responsible for running the Twitter account. And I helped with the Instagram account of my department. Um, so I got a kind of like a taste of a professional kind of uh, social media account. And so now... I am doing the Fossil Friday posts for the museum. And that's so strange because obviously I want to talk about plants, but I'm not in charge of plants. So I can't really talk about them. Uh, and so I have to keep talking about like animals and like nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I really do enjoy it. Like, and I do know these things, but it's, it's weird. Cause it's like, this wouldn't be my first choice. Um, But I, like, I don't know. I have learned so much about the Western Interior Seaway, like, the ocean that covered Kansas in the late Cretaceous, like, never knew anything about that. I It's work in the Miocene. <laughs> I know, right? I work in the Miocene. Like, 20 million, anything older than 20 million is like, whoa, that's too old. Um, which I feel like is really saying something as, like, a paleontologist. But, um... Yeah. And so going back on, like, this is what a paleo, or this is what a scientist can look like. There's also this, like ridiculous stereotype that like scientists are just like incapable of speaking and like explaining things and talking to people which is not the case like i mean there are mm -hmm. there are many scientists who are very good at talking about science to the public in a way that is approachable like it's not and more people do need to be trained in that i think that's important but it's not like we're just in like word vomit like that's not true and i just i think it's so important like that's part of the reason why i'm so vocal on twitter like i just i want to prove like hi let me talk to you about science like i could i could do this like that's why i talk constantly on instagram i'm like just want to show you that hi i'm a scientist but i'm not scary like you can understand things and i study like climate change and human evolution like i should be the scariest kind of scientist and yeah it's it's <laughs> it's it's I don't and know. i mean like there's 
there's also science, but like there's some some real science looking into this, and it shows that like if the public sees scientists, like sees their face, so something like Instagram is particularly helpful. Doing videos on Instagram is really really helpful. Mm-hmm. Like that increases public trust with science, and not only that, as you said, like there's this idea of that a scientist looks as like one sort of person and if you're not an old white dude and you want to talk about science that's also really important because it lets people see that there are other types of scientists out there as well and that also has an overall benefit and I'm I'm not just saying benefit in like what Tegan believes is a subjective fact I mean like objective we've done the science we've counted the numbers we've studied this we know that improving diversity in the type of scientists improves scientists we know that seeing different types of scientists in encourages those like people growing up to become scientists themselves we have all this data so like this is really important and what you've mentioned now is like also using twitter and again i still don't think that every scientist has to do outreach some people they want to stay in in a lab or they want to be like digging up fossils that's like that's i don't think we should force every scientist to become a science communicator but there are like lots of options for science communication and as you said like we should also even the ones who don't want to be doing sci-com kind of more formally we should be still training all scientists to communicate because even what we're talking about at the start of the podcast about having those beautiful figures like that is part of psychom like that like making sure your science is understandable and you know accessible like this is a big part of it and Mm -hmm. yeah it's important yeah, I, I think that just just training. I mean, a lot of like scientists aren't ever taught to teach. They're definitely not taught how to do psychom. And I, I had a friend who did a postdoc that was in science communication, and she was saying that one of the most useful skills that she got out of that was learning how to do a soundbite. Because scientists, we want to go on and on and on and just explain (laughs) everything to you. But like, they're only going to use 10 seconds of what you say. So like, figure it out. Um, And like, I think that's a really useful skill, like figuring out, like, synthesize what you're going to say and just get it out there. And that's hard. (laughs) I think um, that should be a good way to wrap up. But like, do you, is there any... I just want to add one more thing um, about lateral thinking. That's another reason why you, because we talked about that in paleontology. It's all about this lateral thinking because we can't, we are time travelers without a time machine. So like we can't actually check. Um, So we have to figure out ways of, of, of figuring things out. And a lot of times these developments are like this progress is made when you have something coming from a different direction. Like, Hey, Y'all tried this and like, cause if you have like the same type of person, just like, you're not going to go anywhere. <laughs> like y'all think the same way you have the same background. Like you need someone who looks at it a different way. Like, Oh, you tried this. Like, absolutely, this is important. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like diversity at every level. Like, I mean, like gender and like cultural background, like country, geographic diversity, but also like different fields, interdisciplinary, like, um, you know, not like going out of science, even like trying more, like maybe, I mean, not out fully out, but like social sciences and how that interacts with what you're studying. Like all of these things are so important. And I, I mean, it's insane that we're still kind of working that out. It's a bit ridiculous that we're still kind of working that out. And it does take a lot of resources, but yeah, it does. Doing. But at- I, I am an interdisciplinary scientist. Like I work in, as a paleontologist, by definition, I have to have a background in biology and geology because I'm also working with living things. Like, you know, I have to come, like there's plant science involved and 
it's funny. I real quick, um, my first week of my PhD, I went to a conference that was half botanists and like plant scientists and half mathematicians because oh, wow. we were talking about that's where, um, that's actually where my first paper kind of came from, um, was actually, we did make a paper from that, a white paper, uh, kind of like review from that conference that I'm also on. Um, but anyway, it was like the paleo, or excuse me, the, the botanists were complaining, like we're trying to quantify these aspects of plant shape and we can't figure out how. And the uh, mathematicians were like, oh yeah, we already did that. Like we've moved on. Do you want us to help you? Like, yes. <laughs> so yeah, like you need to get people involved from all directions. Um, we, we, I think we spent a good time like exploring um, like paleo, uh, paleo botany in a way that I personally had no idea about. And it's really, really cool. I'm really uh, thankful for that. Uh, thank you for your time. Um, we always uh, like we always encourage people to get in touch with us. So if people want to talk to you, what is the best way? Where can they find you? Where can they learn more about what you do? Hello, I live on the internet. Um, so you can find me at multiple places. Um, I live on Twitter. Um, my Twitter handle is at KyrieTree. So K-Y-R-I-E-T-R-E-E. -E -E. We <laughs> will also link that below, like uh, in yes. the show notes of the podcast. Yes. And then I am on Instagram at Paleolorax because I speak for the fossil trees. Um, and then <laughs> I, I, I was doing it. Sorry. I was doing a tour for uh, national fossil day. And I mentioned that my Instagram was paleo Lorax because I speak for the fossil trees. And some, the person who was hosting it, who had been following me on Instagram for a long time, like, Oh, I didn't realize that's what that was. <laughs> I said, oh no, it's, it's okay. It's okay. Um, and then finally, uh, the Sternberg museum, um, has a YouTube channel. So every oh, week nice. um, we have been doing different um, science videos. And so far I have done two different videos about plants. Uh, the first one is what is a herbarium? And then the second one was talking about different types of fruit. So if you want to see my face, like you could go lots of places. <laughs> uh, I talk, I talk everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put all the links in the show notes as your arm said, yeah. so you can check them all out. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, that was a pleasure. That was very uh, fun. I, yeah, I, I hope our listeners won't know about it, like won't hear the troubles that we had to go through in terms of like German internet connection that broke down multiple times. But, but that's that's like also a blessing that the hardest thing about the interview was the internet, not like, right? oh, 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 what do we say? <laughs> like that was, oh, yes. thank you so much for your time, Ali. That was truly a pleasure, honestly. Uh, yes, it's been absolutely it delightful because like, like you mentioned, like I do follow you on Instagram. I... I know who you are. Um, so just like actually talking like, oh, internet people are so nice. It's really nice. Yeah, I'm, I am I. didn't really think of, I didn't come up in that age where I was really contacting a lot of people on the internet until like I started getting on Instagram. I was like, wow, I can actually like reach out and, you know, have projects or have podcasts or do things with these real people on the other side of the world on the internet. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah. It's It's really yeah. nice. Yeah, I know. And like people are people aren't necessarily scary. Like they can be really nice. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. So so people, if you want to get in contact with us, um you can reach us on social media as well. Like on Twitter, you can talk to me most of the time. That's at plants per pets. 
On Instagram and Facebook, it's me. It's at Plants and Pipettes. Uh, we also have a website. It's plantsandpipettes.com. Uh, you find there once or twice per week articles about the world from uh, of molecular plant biology. And what do, else do we always say? Like, rate us, please. Tell your <laughs> friends. Yeah. And Spread the word. Thank you. Thank you again for being with us today. And yeah, goodbye. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. Waves. <laughs> oh, wait. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross. Wow. Stupid creative comments. We always have to say that. The amount of times we forget Yarm. <laughs> there we One go. One point we will get sued. <laughs> <laughs>